Well, please accept my greetings from Grace Bible Church in Hutchinson, Kansas. It's a blessing to be here with you. It's a blessing for our church every year to come here and have our men's compass recalibrated, have our energies refocused and our passions directed at the Lord of glory that we serve together. And it's great to do it with other men. Thank you to all the servants who've been spoiling us. I just want to make one note for all of you. Men, don't expect this when you go home to your church tomorrow. Soak it up today because tomorrow you'll have to be grown-ups, but today they'll take good care of you. Uh, Months ago when Pastor Dave asked me if I had preached for this conference, I was excited to say yes, but I was a little surprised as well. I couldn't believe that so many people who do have those BART stories would allow him to let me come back in this role, but I am so thankful for the role that Flint Hills Bible Church has played in my life and the life of my family. In the mid-90s, my parents brought me here, and we were here for a Dave Trevecki outreach video, and it had such an impact on us that we stayed, and praise the Lord for that. I praise the Lord for this place and these people and this church. And I'm so thankful for Pastor Dave and his continued vision and uh, care And love for this conference to challenge men to be the men that our Savior deserves that we be. So thank you, Pastor Dave, and all those here at this church. Well, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 and find verses 19 to 25 where we will focus our attention this afternoon. When you hear the word, some assembly required, what comes to mind? A decade ago, my oldest son had just turned four, and my father-in-law, who lived in upstate New York, had a John Deere pedal-powered front-end loader riding pedal tractor of plastic glory and quarter-inch fasteners drop shipped to my doorstep. How thoughtful of him. Some assembly required, the box said. Several hours after I had begun trying to construct this piece of Chinese manufacturing wizardry, of course it was Christmas Eve, I'd procrastinated procrastinated the entire month of December, I was ready to burn this little plastic heap and the fasteners that came within the box that came in in the backyard to destroy the evidence, some assembly required, whatever. 2,742 pieces, and give or take. Pure headache. 75 steps written in broken English on how to put this thing together with four grainy black and white photos. It's a disaster. Maybe you're a husband, and your wife has taken you to that purgatory called Ikea. And she's convinced you that purchasing a product that is incomplete is a good decision. The packaging at Ikea is smarter than I am. You go to pick up a pair of bunk beds and they give it to you in in a box the size of your seat cushion and it weighs 85 pounds and it says, some assembly required. It's kind of amazing, some assembly required, they say, six hours later and a handful of extra bolts and such. You have a pair of bunk beds that you just hope doesn't maim your children as they sleep on them. I think my problem with the idea of some assembly required, and perhaps the root of bitterness you can detect in me, is that some assembly required is a lie. 
Some assembly required gets you a John Deere pedal power front end tractor loader that doesn't load. Some assembly required gets you bunk beds that don't hold your kids. Some assembly is not required. All assembly is required. Some assembly is purely marketing, convincing your wife that you'll be able to put this together in an afternoon. Lies. (laughs) And I'll admit that plastic tractors and bunk beds may fall into the category of some assembly required, but I'm afraid that too many men would put the church in the same category. Some assembly required. Brothers, I hope the word of God proves to you today there's no such attitude towards church as some assembly required. Instead, assembly is required. But here's the thing. The Bible, it doesn't coerce you or force you into coming to church. In fact, if you need guilted into church attendance, something else is wrong. If you're worried about how many times you've checked the pad as it's been passed down the aisle, there's a host of other root problems in your life. The Bible doesn't guilt you into being in church. The Bible assumes that when you truly know the fullness of Christ and trust confidently in Christ and are seeking to draw near to Christ and holding Christ tighter than anything else in your life and are longing to live for Christ as he deserves, he, that he alone is the one that saved you. When you know these things, what will be able to keep you to coming from the place where he is feasted upon? Church is where the family of God gets together. Church is where we feast on the king of glory. Church is where we feed on the nourishment of his word. Church is where we are together with our father as family. And so when you think church, when you think the household of God, do you think some assembly required hope not. I pray that you won't even see it as assembly required, but you'll see it instead as assembly desired where you want to be. So please stand with me in reverence to the living word of God as we look to our Father's word for his children. Hebrews chapter 10, read verses 19 to 25 with me. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you for help. Pray that you'll tune our hearts this afternoon to the beauty of your truth. That you'll show us 
how these truths that we have heard before, these truths that we know should impact how we think and feel and act and live towards this family that by your grace through faith we are in. Help us to shed distraction. Help us to fight the weaknesses of our flesh. Help us to worship you. You deserve it. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. As we jump into Hebrews chapter 10, we should ask ourselves a few questions. Who's talking? Who are they talking to? And what are they talking about? Hebrews, as a book, can be a bit enigmatic. After all, it's a book that's not a book. It's a a letter that's not a letter. It's a sermon that ends like a letter. It's an anonymous word of exhortation to a nameless congregation. But in other respects, the book of Hebrews is very simple. It has a single argument. The argument is this. Jesus is better. That's the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. Better than what? How about everything? Jesus is better. He's a better prophet, better priest, better king. He's a better sacrifice. He's better than the angels. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Melchizedek. Jesus is absolutely always better. That's the message of the preacher to the Hebrews. And I call him a preacher because that's what he calls himself in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 25. And so who's he preaching to? Well, he's preaching to you today, but who's he preaching to? He was preaching to a worn-out band of ex-Jews who were now Christ followers, believers who were persecuted in the past, and believers who looked on the horizon of the future, and they saw it coming again. So understand that they were Hellenized, meaning they were Jews that had adopted many of the Greek realities of culture and life. They were misfits. They were looked down on by their society. They were abused by their government. They were rejected by their own people because they were the ones who chose to follow the crucified Messiah. See, their life was hard. And the preacher to the Hebrews has a simple solution. He enters their church in this sermon. He comes into their assembly and he plops Jesus down on the lazy Susan in front of all of them, and he just spins Christ and says, feast on this in every way, always, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is more glorious. Jesus is more worth it. You may think you have needs, but you have one need, and it's Jesus. So we should wonder if the preacher to the Hebrews shows up and is making the case to these weary, battle-hardened, and worn-down believers that what they need is to be active in getting to church. If he's exhorting his sheep to save their wool by coming together as a body, we should ask, why do we need to go to church? It's a fair question. This passage shows us, as the household of God, the value of coming together as family. And you see, the preacher gives us four lessons that we learn in church. Four lessons we must pursue in and among church family. The church, the household of God, first, is where we learn to confidently trust in Christ. 
verses 19 to 21. Look at the first half of verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Therefore, you see, from Hebrews chapter 5, really through chapter 10, this preacher has been pounding home truth after truth after truth, evidence upon evidence that reveals Jesus as the perfect, final, glorious high priest who is not only able to bring his people to God, but is active in bringing his people to God and purifying his people. And he alone is the one who was able to do this. For example, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, you'll read, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brothers, we find in Hebrews a Savior that is beyond our greatest expectation. He's above our highest hope, and he's better than our every anticipation. He has accomplished what we could not. That's the truth the preacher is getting at in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. We says, therefore. In verses 19 to 21, they encapsulate, they summarize, they clarify all this glorious Christology and the wonderful salvation that Christ has earned in just a few words. Therefore, we have confidence. But who's the preacher talking to? Second word. Family. Brothers. We're into verse 21, the household of God. You see, in our natural state, we are anything but family. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says we're hated by others and hating one another. That's our natural state. Outside of Christ, that's who we are. But it's worse than that because outside of Christ, not only are we enemies one to another, we have enmity between us and God. We're hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. We had a relationship of terror and anger with God before Christ. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. Outside of Christ, we're object of God's wrath. The crosshairs of his judgment are fixed on our rebellious souls. But the message of Hebrews is that Jesus has come and made purification for our sins and brought reconciliation between God and man. That is why we are brothers in the family of God. And that is why we have confidence. Because Christ came, Christ bled, Christ died, and Christ was risen. And you turned from your sins. And you believed. If that's true of you, then therefore, brothers, we are brothers. And because of that family, we have confidence. We must recognize man's sin earned God's wrath and judgment and anger and ire and hate. But Christ's work made us family. Praise God. From terror and separation to family and reconciliation. Because of Christ, we have confidence. Confidence, what is it? Maybe confidence to you is stepping up to the free throw line knowing that 92% of the time you're going to make it. Maybe confidence is leading your team at work knowing you're going to accomplish your quarterly quotas. But confidence in the context, this confidence is a little different. Confidence in the context is the ability to approach God and know that you're not going to die. 
That's the context. That's the confidence. To enter the holy places. The truth for all those who lived under the old covenant was that nobody had confidence to enter the holy places. After all, the only people who were allowed to enter the holy places, which is another way to say the holy of holies, were the high priests, and they were terrified. But now, because of Christ, what do we see? Look at verse 19. Brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Those in the family of God are welcome in the presence of God. We have access or we have authorization to enter the holy places without restriction, without continued sacrifice or ceremony. To the original audience, this would have been striking. would have been awe-inspiring fear of God invoking the preachers reaching back into their religious baggage of these people. He says, do you remember the tabernacle? Who went into the tabernacle? Only people that were there for a sacrifice. And unless you were a Levite, you never left the outer court. And since the fence around the tabernacle was eight and a half feet tall, unless your cousin's name was Goliath, you couldn't see what was going on on the inside of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was designed to remind Israel Yahweh was not common. Yahweh was set apart. Yahweh couldn't be approached without sacrifice. There was no access to Yahweh, let alone confidence, to enter his presence. The court of tabernacles was accessible to Levites alone, priests who would enter the outer court where there was a bronze altar and a bronze basin. Their sacrifices would be performed as needed and desired by God's people. And daily, morning and evening, there were sacrifices described in Exodus 29 to remind God's people that they They had blood shed on their behalf that day. But they didn't have confidence to enter the holy places. Nobody did. In fact, the holy places, the holy of holies, the 15 by 15 tent within the tent, it was a room that was lined with curtains and porpoise skins where the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, resided. God was with Israel. But Israel couldn't really be with him. And nobody misunderstood. Nobody just waltzed into the Holy of Holies saying, hey, I want to see what's going on in here. If they did, they did it once and they paid for it with their life. But the preacher to the Hebrews says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what in the world? To get into the Holy of Holies, you had to be the high priest. On the Day of Atonement, that's the end of the list. Leviticus chapter 16 describes what God demanded of his high priest on the Day of Atonement, and it begins with a warning from God. Leviticus 16.2, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Let me put that in modern vernacular. God, through Moses, says to Aaron, don't mess with me. I'm not your homeboy. 
And through the rest of chapter 16, the fear of God is burned into the people of Israel. And they're instructed in how the high priest alone on one day a year can enter Yahweh's holy of holies to sacrifice on behalf of Israel. And as much as some of you want to read Leviticus 16 right now, some of you are bouncing in and out of a diabetic coma. There's a brother at my 2 o'clock. Bro, come on, just go take a nap somewhere. But, you know, on the Day of Atonement... We find in Leviticus 16 exactly how the high priest is supposed to prepare. And I'm going to summarize it for you. On one day a year, one man would enter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would wake up early and he'd bathe. And he'd, some of you are like, oh, interesting. But he'd bathe. And he'd don his special robes that were only worn. And then he would, on the, high, on the Day of Atonement, and then he would oversee the normal sacrifices because those had to happen. And then he sacrificed a bull for all of Israel. And then he put on different priestly robes. He changed his clothes into white linen that was only worn on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And then the high priest would sacrifice another bull. And then there were two scapegoats that were brought to him, one for Yahweh and one for the people. The high priest would then get coals from the bronze altar and he put them in a special censer and he gets special incense from a special dish, and then he would finally enter the Holy of Holies for the first time. He burned incense in the presence of God, but he didn't stay there. As soon as he did that, he got back out. He left, and he came out of the Holy of Holies. He took the blood from the bronze basin. He returned back into the Holy of Holies with his hyssop branches. Seven times he sprinkled vertically on the altar. Seven times he sprinkled horizontally on the altar. Out. He came out and he killed the goat that was marked for Jehovah. And with the goat's blood, he re-entered the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled again. And then he exited. And that was all the time in the presence of God that he got. That was it. And then the high priest laid his hands on the scapegoat. And another priest took it off into the wilderness, confessed the people's sin, and it was gone. But the high priest wasn't done. He went into the tent of meeting. He changed out of his white linen robe that he wore in the presence of God. And he bathed again. And then he burned fat on the altar. And then he, it was his job to make sure that all of the skin and the dung and the bones of the sacrifices were taken outside of the camp to be burned. Why all of that? Leviticus chapter 16 verse 30 says, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That was all day long for the priest. And Jewish tradition tells us that his day wasn't finished yet. Because on the day of atonement, every high priest at the end of the day after sundown, do you know what they did? They hosted a feast. Do you know why? They were still alive. All of this showed the people of Israel the holiness of God, the unapproachableness of God All of its perpetual necessity showed that they were not completely forever right with God. What did the faithful of Israel know after every Yom Kippur? That on their own, they couldn't get to God. In their own righteousness, they weren't worthy. They didn't have authorization to come unfettered to God. But are you reading your Bible in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 where it says, We have confidence by the blood of Jesus. Priests never showed up without the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. 
Sin demanded life. Sin demanded blood. You can't come to God on your own. He's above you and beyond you. You don't have access to him. There is no confidence that you will ever enter into his presence and live on your own. But Jesus, friends, assures you are not on your own. We have a great high priest. He didn't bring incense or the blood of bulls and goats into the holy places. Jesus brought his own life. He brought his own blood. Jesus is the perfect forever final sacrifice. And Jesus, as the final and perfect high priest who brings us into the very presence of God, verse 20, is a new and living way. You see, the priests of old, when they burned their sacrifices and they had burned their incense, they'd sprinkled their blood and they left the Holy of Holies. And they came out, the curtain closed behind them and the presence of God was sealed behind them to protect the presence of God and his glory. But when Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies, pure and righteous on behalf of the household of God, as our high priest, he offers a perfect sacrifice, a willing, pure, holy sacrifice himself. And he spills his lifeblood there on the mercy seat to atone for our sin. It is finished, you could say. There is no other sacrifice. This is precisely why Charles Spurgeon said, I can boil all my theology down to four words. Jesus died for me. Our great high priest sacrificed for us. But he did not merely atone for our sins. He brought a new relationship with God. Jesus was too perfect and too righteous for death to hold. So in the power of his life-giving action, he turns to open the holy, holies, holy of holies curtain. But it wasn't to leave like the other high priests. Because there in the outer court, there we stand. A kingdom of priests on our own, unable to come in, unqualified for entry. But what does our great high priest do? He beckons us into the very presence of God. We follow him into the holy of holies. In his perfection, he waves us in, all of us brothers, by the new and living way, Christ the Messiah, Jesus, the long-awaited, much-anticipated, perfect prophet, priest, and king says, come on into the very presence of God. His death brings our life. He blazed the trail for us to have life with God from enemies to sons, from enmity to family. And through his flesh, we enter through the curtain with confidence to enter the presence of almighty God. By God's grace, through faith in the work of Christ, you, brother, can have confidence to enter the presence of of God, But how does it happen? Verse 1 reminds us because or since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Jesus, as the great high priest, his concern is for us. His passion is for us. His love is for us. His efforts are on our behalf. He, he is interceding for us. He is not my great high priest. He is our great priest. High priest. Not only is Jesus the king who rules and reigns from the right hand of God where nothing escapes his sovereign decree, but brothers, Jesus is also the great high priest over our family. 
We are all ordinary men from every tribe and nation and tongue that God purchases and brings into an extraordinary family. Look there at the end of verse 21, the house of God. What a glorious truth we have here that by the work of Christ, we have confidence, we have access to God. But I wonder, is that true of you? Forget we for just a moment. Have you reckoned your sins deserving of death? Have you seen your utter insufficiency on your own to please God? Have you felt the hopelessness of knowing on your own you can't make yourself right with God? Do you see that you need a high priest who doesn't just make sacrifices for you, but is your sacrifice? A priest who doesn't just merely go behind the veil to appease God temporarily, but eternally satisfies the wrath of God by his own death on your behalf? I don't know about you, but I need these truths preached to my soul. I need these truths put in front of me often. I need taught the wonder of Christ. So by grace, through faith in him, I will confidently go to him and find in him all that I need to live this life for him because he alone is better. Verse 19, brothers, family, your church family is where you pursue a life that trusts confidently in the work of Christ. So do you need to go to church? Assembly required. Second, with the people of God, you learn to draw near to Christ. Notice what the preacher is doing. He has summarized in verses 19 to 21, really, his argument from chapters 5 through 10 in the book of Hebrews. And now he's going to give us three applications Let us draw near, verse 22. Let us hold fast, verse 23. And let us encourage one another, verses 24 and 5. By the way, you know Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It's just one sentence from the preacher to these people. The the preacher is saying, if you know Christ, if you are truly in the family of God, the household of God, then this is what your life will look like. And all of these, they're we's and ours and us's because we learn and practice what we have in salvation and who we are in Christ together. First application, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bone in this verse, but this is an application of our salvation. We draw near. Let us draw near. And then the preacher reminds us of how our salvation was accomplished, the the work of Christ in the new covenant, the blood-sprinkled conscience and the water-cleansed bodies. Those are alluding to the work of Christ in the new covenant. And so look at the beginning of the verse. Let us, this cohortative, this is as brotherly a way to command us as possible. But it is a command. It's as if the preacher can't imagine us not wanting to obey and yet knowing Humanity well enough to know he's got to remind us and push us to godliness. Let us draw near with a true heart. When? Well, obviously Sunday in one service. Check the box and watch the chiefs. 
when? When do we draw near with a true heart? How about always? This is the habit of your life if you're in the household of God. Ask yourself, how do you draw near to God? Is it Bible reading? Is it prayer? One of my favorite preachers that I sat under for years used to say, is this to read your Bible and pray more sermon? Of course, the answer is always yes. Does Rick still say that, Mission Road? You you pounded that into college students. I remember that. Why? Because that's how we draw near to Christ. The preacher to the Hebrews says there's even more ways to draw near to Christ. You draw near to God when you're living by faith. You draw near to God when you suffer and endure difficulty and persecution. You draw near to God when you long for heaven. And as the preacher builds these applications from our salvation throughout his sermon to the Hebrews, it becomes clear that we do these things together. We draw near to Christ together. Drawing near to God is what those in the household of God do. Think about it like this. In my life, I need to watch older men lose their wife after decades and weep and mourn, but find Christ is their only hope, and I need to see them draw near to Christ. I need to look at men who are marvelously successful at business with fat bank accounts and yet passionately dissatisfied with the world and zealously focused on Christ drawing near to him. I need to sit with some younger men as they hear the diagnosis from the doctors about their child and feel the hopelessness that the curse of this world brings. And I need to be able to offer them Christ to draw near to. Again, brothers, let us draw near to Christ. There's no finer place to learn how to draw near than in your church family. The third lesson we must learn in church family is how to hold fast to Christ. Again, if you're family, if you're brothers, if you have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of a crucified and risen Messiah, then you'll hold fast to him. Specifically, verse 23, the confession of our hope. What's that but shorthand for the work of Christ in the gospel? We can't, but he did. We were lost. He found us. We were slaves to sin. He set us free. We were enemies of God, but now we're family. Hallelujah. Our hope, middle of verse 23, it's not some nebulous mess of soupy, esoteric emotion. It's an objective, clear, concrete reality that is actually a person. Our hope brings us forgiveness from the past. Our hope brings us access to God in the present and an unshakable confidence about the future glory that awaits us. We hold fast to Christ because he's the object of our hope. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. We hold fast to Christ without wavering, middle of verse 23. It's not seasonal, it's perpetual. Amen. We hold fast to our hope with an unyielding tenacity. But maybe you're more honest than most and you say, you know, I'm trying, but I'm just not that faithful. I kind of fumble my faith on occasion. 
Well, in all Calvinistic humor, you're in luck, brother, because the one we hold fast is holding fast to us. End of verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. Holding fast doesn't rest on you. No, you hold him, but he will not let you go. I wonder, brother, what are you holding? What's filling your hands? Because holding fast to Christ means letting go of everything else. You cannot hold fast to Christ on Sunday and the world on Monday. You can't hold fast to Christ with the right hand and vice with the left hand. You have to hold only and just Jesus. Hold fast to Christ, the confession of our hope. And when you hold fast to Christ, you know you have this hope. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain. You see, our anchor doesn't go down to the seabed. Our anchor goes up and is rooted in the holy of holies in the heavenly places in the presence of God being brought near by the blood of Christ to him whom we hold fast. And we can rest in the reality that our grip will never be strong enough, but his grip cannot be broken. Amen. Can I ask you, who will tell you to cling to Christ? Who will tell you to hold fast to just Jesus? Let me answer. Only your brothers. The world says, set your hope on what makes you happy. The world says, see your future through a pay scale. The world says, enjoy the present through the accolades of man. Brothers, Every single time the church meets together, we should not be able to be kept away because we want to refasten our grip and adjust our hands and lock down our lives on the one who is our hope so that when struggles come, not if, but when struggles come, we find that while we hold him without wavering, he is holding us and will not let us go because he's the one who's promised and he's the one who's faithful. If you haven't picked up on what the preacher's putting down, you can't do this alone. Amen. Notice, fourth, why must you be in church to push others to Christ? There are life lessons you will not and cannot learn apart from the church. Look at verses 24 and 5. And let us consider, there's our command, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the third command that we, together, as the household of God, must pursue. Let us be engaged in the business of stirring each other toward love and good works. You see, this sentence from our preacher is amazing. Verses 19 to 25, just one sentence. It's like the Leon Lett of sentences. You Gentiles don't know who Leon Lett is. 
But if you grew up around here, you knew who Leon Lett was. Six foot six, 300 pounds, a three-time Super Bowl champion winning Emporia State University football player, Leon Lett. I mean, the big cat, he came at you fast and he just swallowed quarterbacks. That's kind of like this verse. It just comes at us. All of a sudden, it's all of our life is taken over by these verses 19 to 25. We go from sprinkling blood in the tabernacle to the presence of God in heaven to your buns in church tomorrow and how you act in your men's group on Monday. All of your life is in view in these verses. My hope, friend, you see that this is not some assembly required. It's all assembly desired. But why? Because the one who has saved us by his blood, whom we draw near to and who holds us fast, deserves our worship of him by our stirring up of each other to love and good works for him, for his glory and the benefit of one another. Again, brother, if you feel guilted into going to church, you're not understanding what Christ has done. If we're in the household of God, our calling is to be stirring one another up to love and good works. Stirring. Stirring who? I stir you up. You stir me up. I encourage you. You encourage me. Can I do this by myself? No. Now, I get it. This is middle America. And here in middle America, we do our own thing our own way, and we don't need nobody. But if you're in the family of God, the household of God, God has made you to need your family. And here's the other part of that. Your family needs you. Being present and active in a local assembly is not optional. Some of you view it that way, but you disregard This verse, you disagree with God, and brothers, it's his house, his family, and his rules. Instead of obeying verse 24, you're falling into the danger of verse 25, neglecting the assembly. Forsaking the assembly is like forsaking Christ who purified us together by his blood. Maybe you say, well, I got a church. Leave me alone, preacher. I'm I'm good. No, you're not. You better not be a part of my church if that's what you think. Because it ain't my church. It's Jesus' church, the one who died for it and paid for it with his own blood. You know, I got a church, you say. Oh, yeah? But you're the only one. You're you're only there on, on occasion. And you're one of those people that doesn't really engage. And you come in late and you leave early. You say, but I got a church. But you're not active. You're not passionate about the brothers and sisters in the family of God, seeing them grow to maturity in Christ. He said, but I got a church. But you skip church for football games. He said, but I got a church. But when the pastor lays an egg, you're the first one to throw him under the bus to anybody who will listen. You say, but I got a church. But when the church needs help and asks for volunteers, you're complaining because they're too demanding. You say, but I got a church. But when the church has vision and ministry and people are evangelizing and getting saved and being discipled and the church wants to grow the trellis to support the vine, you say, man, these people are greedy. But you say, I got a church. But when people who aren't like you in age or race or socioeconomic show up to your church, you give them the frozen chosen treatment until they leave. You say, but I got a church. 
Maybe you're in leadership, and when you're preaching, you're not preaching for the good of the body. You're preaching so they'll tell you how good it was. You say, but I got a church. But the depth of your relationships with the brothers and sisters around you in your local assembly only goes as deep as the two-minute meet and greet allows. And you say, but I got a church. And although you hardly ever miss a Sunday, the sum total of your church involvement life is listening to others Preach and allowing others to serve you while you sit and watch. You say, but I got a church. But when weary, battle-scarred believers cross your path and they need your help, you ain't got time for that. Just give them a John MacArthur book, send them on their way. You say, but I got a church. But when younger men aren't living godly and older men are wasting their retirement, you look at them and judge them, but you do not go to them and love them into good works for the glory of God. You say, but I got a church. Did I miss anybody? (laughs) Say, but I got a church. Friend, I got a Peloton. That doesn't make me Lance Armstrong. Brothers, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good works. And you're here, so it's likely that you do have a church, and it's likely that you do attend one, but do you see that attendance without positively provoking one another is no better than, ready for this, live stream? Pagans. If you come to church, but don't participate, you're just taking up space. Don't be a part of the parking problem. Be a Christian. Be active and animated in your efforts to provoke fellow believers to love and good works. Some of you read verses 24 and 25 in your own translation like this. Let us consider how we cannot bother each other. And coast into eternity with the least amount of disruption to our already scheduled hobby activities. Gag me. Come on. If you see issues in your church that you're not provoking those around you to love and good works to solve those issues in your church, here's my analysis you're the problem. Get busy. Don't wait on a pastor. He's already got a job. Get some other men. Come alongside of him and provoke people to love and good works. That's the habit of your life. It must be stirring or stimulating good works in one another. Maybe you're rocking the NIV today. Your translation probably hits the best tenor here. To spur one another on. That's the idea. This is a positive provocation. Ordinarily, we look at provoking somebody as a bad thing, causing them to sin. Well, this is causing them to be righteous. The preacher flips it on its head and says, we should be provoking one another to love and good works. Why do you need the household of God? So that someone will take their spurs and stick them in your spiritual ribcage and help you love and serve and care for the beauty of Christ's bride together. Going to church is not enough. I go to church, you say. You want a participation award? 
Brothers, get busy loving, serving, caring for, exhorting, rebuking, honoring, welcoming, discipling, preferring, shepherding, forgiving, and submitting to one another. Maybe this was you in the past. You were passionate about seeing believers grow in Christ, but then life happened. You got busy or ministry was hard. You realized it was no fun. Your passion fizzled. Now you just kind of, you know, come and smile, but you're busy with other stuff or you're worn out. Okay, maybe you got hurt. All right. But remember who this sermon was preached to. It was preached to weary believers. They were just trying to survive. They'd been persecuted in the past, and they didn't have a crystal ball, but they saw it coming in the future. And what's the preacher offer them? Relief from persecution? A benevolent offering? A vacation? What's the preacher say to them? Uh, Get busy. Get on it. Spur one another on. Stir each other into the actions of love and good works. All the one another's are in view right there. But this isn't a do more, do better sermon, not at all. Notice the motivation. Instead of avoiding genuine fellowship, middle of verse 25, why do you pursue real genuine fellowship? Verse 25, be active and encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the motivation. The motivation is the day Christ is coming back. I wonder, do you feel it? Or are you so satisfied with the here and now, you're not worried about then? Brothers, this world is ugly and broken. Many of our churches have struggles and mess. I have sin that seems unconquerable. You have sin that's overwhelming at times. What do we need? Oh, brother, we need our king to come back. We need our savior to return. We need encouraged to look to that day, day not this day, on our own. You, you feel the problem. You fear the future. But in this family, we should collectively look forward to Christ's return. The fulfillment of his promises always outweigh the fear of the unknown. The hope of heaven conquers the heartache of the present. But on our own, where do we look? Fox News and Tucker Carlson. You kidding me? We need men to point our souls and hearts and lives to heaven. We need the Lord of heaven and earth to come back for his own. And we need him to set right the wrongs. We need the better Jesus to come for us. And by God's grace, that's just what he's promised. That day, it wasn't yesterday, but who's to say it's not today? And by God's grace, that's just what he's promised. He's coming. Do you believe it? Eh. Do you believe it? Do you live like it? Will you live for the return of our perfect prophet, priest, and king? As men, we need brothers who point our hearts to the sky 
where he will come in power and glory. Because maybe you've forgotten that the Savior who came and lived on earth a life perfectly that you couldn't live and died a death unjustly that you deserved and suffered under God's wrath, bearing your sin. Though he was killed and buried, the grave couldn't hold him and heaven wanted him back where he ascended and sits now at the right hand of God. That's the king we will see on the day that's drawing near. He will come as a conquering king. He will come robed in majesty. He will come in honor. He will come high and lifted up. He will come crowned in glory. He will come on a white horse ready to make war. He will come with with a robe that's dipped in the blood of his enemies. He will come with a sword of victory in his mouth. He will come and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He will come and on his robe and tattooed on his thigh. That'll get the fundies worked up. Tattooed on his thigh, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers, on that day, our hopes will be realized. All the promises will be fulfilled. Our sorrows will be set aside and our longings will be satisfied. And on that day, we will worship him together. Amen? Amen. Can I ask you, why wait? Brothers, your church family Need you. The household of God has purchased you and deserves you to give all of your life. Get your eyes off the puny priorities of today. Set your hopes on the glory of the one who's coming back for us and push your brothers with you to him. May we be men characterized as those who trust confidently in Christ and are always seeking to draw near to Christ as we hold on to Christ, pushing each other to Christ. May the passion of our hearts truly be assembly desired. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see in the beauty of our Savior, the perfect worth, the perfect sacrifice who shed his blood for us that we could be purchased into your family. Father, help us to want nothing more than what you deserve from us. Help our lives to be devoted to him. Help our passions be directed at him and help us by your grace to do this together as men. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.